ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, friends, Romans, countrymen. <laughs> okay, I'm really excited about today. And I hope as you came in, you were handed a copy of this brand new commentary that's been published on the book of Hebrews, written by Edward Fudge. I asked Edward if, if this might be something where we could work something out to give a copy to our class because he's filled in for me before, and a number of you know him through a number of different sources. And, and we set it up to do so before I realized that Edward actually um, dedicated this book to me. And once I realized that, I felt really guilty, like, oh, yeah, well, here, look, the book's dedicated to me. Have a copy. Um, <laughs> I promise you we set that up before I knew it, and it's embarrassing to me that, that, that uh, in light of all of that, this is here. I wanted you to have a copy because Edward had been sending me his galley proofs as he was writing it, and I was getting to read along as he worked on this book. And so I was very excited. I'm excited to post this on the Internet so people can hear this interview with Edward, and that's what I want to do is I want to go through the book of Hebrews. Let me tell you a moment about Edward Fudge. When I moved to Houston, June 1 of 1984, whew, 20, over 25 years ago, um, you're not any younger than I am. You should not be making those comments. When, when I moved here, I started going to church at a church in the Galleria area, and I had the blessing of sitting under Edward Fudge occasionally for Sunday school classes. And whenever I was not teaching, I wanted to be in his class. In my 48, almost 49 years of life, I can't think of anybody else I would rather listen to teach the Word of God than Edward. And I mean that sincerely. He's been a mentor to me. He's been a teacher to me. Uh, his lovely wife, Sarah Fay, have been wonderful friends with me. Uh, he has a bachelor's degree in biblical languages, which is what I have. But he also has a master's degree in Greek. And uh, um, uh, he's a wonderful friend. He's published a number of books. He's published in Christianity Today, in the Journal of Evangelical Theology, in, in a, a number of different places. He's, he's published articles, uh, scholarly works, works for the lay person. And so I was excited that Edward and Sarah Fay, his lovely wife, took time to come and not just deliver signed copies, but offered to stay here afterwards if you'd like it personalized. He's come and offered to share with me in an interview on the book of Hebrews. So with that, I'm going to take my stand and I'm going to start with my question mark. <laughs> question mark. And ask you to join me as I turn Edward's mic is on. As I ask Edward some questions, we will uh, discuss this wonderful book that you have in front of you and a little bit more about Edward Fudge. So, Edward, you ready? Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. You people have such a privilege to be in Mark's class year after year. He's one of the most incredible teachers I've ever known. And you know his... Thank you. The same generosity which is giving 400 of you a $20 book this morning is the generosity that sponsored me in writing this book. So 
Well, that was supposed to be anonymous, and Becky is the one who did it anyway, not me. So <laughs> now we will move on. I will tell you, though, if you like these lessons that we do each uh, Sunday, Edward is one of the principal people on the reading list that every Friday night or Saturday morning I can expect an email from him saying, fix this, you got it wrong, or I like this, you got it right, or you might even want to add this. They're always written in a spirit of love, but he is an incredible scholar, and we're blessed by him every week in the lessons we have. So, Edward... How did you come into a relationship with God? Well, I was, I was born into a Christian home. My, my father was a bivocational preacher who had a Christian publishing company. My mother was a missionary kid. She had been born and raised in what now are Zambia and Zimbabwe, uh, having been born there in 1923, I guess. And uh, so I, from the time I was old enough to hear anything, I was hearing the Bible read. And from the time I was old enough to talk or do anything like that, my daddy was trying to start teaching me Greek. And so I, if, if I had not been a Christian, it would have been through enormous, active, malevolent, devilish resistance <laughs> to every good opportunity in the world. <laughs> well, you've been a, a Christian as far back as you can remember. I've, I've known God as far back as I've known my parents. All right. Then let me ask you this. What stands out particularly as some highs in your Christian walk? Uh, one of the highs is, is also going to be a low. Uh, a high was seeing how God worked through terrible adversity uh, and was faithful in spite of adversity and was a provider when it looked like nothing on earth was secure. That was a high that lasted about 10 years, and it was, as I say, also a low. I may say more about that in a moment. Uh, I've just been so incredibly blessed. The verse in the Bible that scares me more than any other verse is is the one that says, of whom much is given, much is required. And I think there's no way I could ever live up to that. Well, I will tell you this. Don't ever get into a Bible memory contest with Edward Fudge. When I was a brash younger man, as opposed to being a fresh man now, I guess, um, Edward and I would sometimes go eat lunch together. It was before Edward went to law school, and Edward was publishing a Christian newspaper, or a Christian, would we call newspaper, it that? Yeah. Christian newspaper. And over lunch, we would periodically ch challenge each other with this. I don't even know if Edward remembers this, but it would be a game where one of us would find a scripture and read it blindly. And the other one could get one point if they named the book, three points if they named the chapter, and five points if they could get the verse. And I was always trying the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, because it's really hard to tell the difference between Matthew, Mark, and Luke on some of those. <laughs> but I, I can tell you, I quit playing it after we did it three times because I just couldn't stay in the ballpark with him. So uh, uh, this is a man, if he's got a favorite Bible verse, he, he can probably start with Genesis 1-1 and go to Revelation 22. So you, 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 I pay attention to you when you say that. What stands out as some lows? Tell us about those. Well, I mentioned a 10-year period when we learned God's faithfulness. That was a time in which, in rapid succession, everything on earth that I thought was solid except my marriage was destroyed or died or taken away. You know, in, in rapid succession, within a period of about three years, my father died at age 57 suddenly and unexpectedly. The family publishing business that my, I had grown up in was taken away from us by some the uh, most charitable thing to say is mean and uh, legalistic and sectarian characters who uh, 
managed to sneak in and purchase it without us knowing it. And I, I don't have time to tell how that could happen. I was fired from that job. I was fired from my preaching job. And two or three debaters who were uh, against what they call the Grace Unity Fellowship Heresy, which I was guilty of, came to our home county and preached uh, meetings in churches against me for time after time after time. They were against grace, unity, unity and fellowship. And fellowship. Hmm. What drew you to the book of Hebrews the very first time? I, I think it must have been to the, the thought that was the title of the first commentary I wrote on Hebrews 35 years ago, which we'll come to later. And the title of that book was Our Man in Heaven. And the, the, it suddenly, it began, maybe not suddenly, gradually at some point in the 1960s, uh, I began to perceive that, that the real picture in Hebrews is Jesus as, as, as a man, not simply a spirit, not simply the Son of God, but the Son of God who became man, one of us. He is in heaven at the right hand of God, and he's there for us. Our man in heaven. That, that was the theme that really captured my mind. And so 35 years ago, you wrote your first commentary on the book of Hebrews? Yes, it had a forward by F.F. F. Bruce from England and uh, was published by Baker Bookhouse. Now, our folks have also uh, gotten a copy of F.F. F. Bruce's book on, on Paul. Uh, that's the same F.F. F. Bruce? Yes, it is. How'd you get him to write the foreword? Well, it was very difficult. I wrote him and asked him. <laughs> I, I, I had read a book about him in honor of him in which the person who summarized it made this statement that besides, uh, besides all of his own books that he has written, they said the, for, the, the books to which he has contributed forwards are legion, many times the best part of the entire book. <laughs> and so I thought if he's that nice, I should ask him. <laughs> Did you ever meet him face to face? Yes, I have. I had a nice visit with him one time in Chicago at an evangelical theological society meeting. That's fantastic. All right. So you write a commentary on Hebrews, Our Man in Heaven. You write it 35 years ago. I have a copy. You can get those copies occasionally off of either eBay or if you go to Amazon.com, you'll find them occasionally listed as a used book um, that, that sellers might have. What caused you to come back decades later and write on Hebrews again. Well, let me add one other word about Our Man in Heaven. You can also read that book free of charge on my website. If you go to edwardfudge.com and look under written materials, you'll see that listed and you can click it and read it. Uh, I, th I think a couple of things probably, Mark. First of all, it was an unbroken succession of interest in Hebrews those 35 years. I preached on it, taught on it, read it, loved it, studied it. It just, uh, it's just probably my favorite book in the whole Bible. So it was, there was never a break in a sense, but what really triggered this uh, commentary was uh, two years ago uh, in 2007 at our Lanier Law Firm retreat in Guatemala, I was out walking one morning about 6 o'clock down the cobblestone streets of Antigua, and nobody was up yet much, and I was praying, and particularly I was praying, asking God for a project that He wanted me to do next to serve Him. Uh, <laughs> next couple of hours uh, or three hours at least by noon I was very impressed in my mind and heart that this is what I should do revise that Hebrews commentary it was based on the King James Version so it had been long out of print and this started to be a revision and turned into a totally new book along with that and I'm going to say this if it embarrasses you or not Mark uh, had told me earlier that year essentially 
to consider the work I did for the Lord, not only as for the Lord, but for him in terms of my job, and he sponsors my ministry, including the writing of this book. Well, in fairness, you reached a point where physically you started having some, some issues that made it uh, uh, something where you, you, it's not as easy for you to write this book as it was your other ones, is it? That's correct. I, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's seven years ago, which is why I'm shaking. I'm not really scared of you all. Uh, <laughs> uh, there, there are good things to Parkinson's. I told my family just before our first granddaughter was born, just think I'll be the only one in the family who can bounce her on my knee without doing anything. <laughs> and I'm on what you call the Parkinson's diet, which means you eat what you can get in your mouth. <laughs> God bless you. Okay, so let me ask you this. Hebrews, your favorite book, you've written on it twice now. What's your favorite aspect of Hebrews? The, the fact, and this, this is a surprise to most people, I think, who haven't gotten into it at this point, but uh, the, the fact that the book of Hebrews is essentially telling the story of Jesus and that it does it from four Old Testament Psalms, which the writer uses to kick off for another section in the story of Jesus. And, and, the, and I had grown up kind of thinking that Hebrews is this uh, weird uh, old, old book about ancient Jewish priestly stuff and it was boring and irrelevant and all of that. And many Christian people have that idea and so they don't even try to read it. But if, if, if you learn the secret to Hebrews, it is that it's really the story of the Son of God who became a man to make men and women children of God who is now himself man in heaven on our behalf, guaranteeing our present successes and guaranteeing our ultimate victory beside him. Okay, being the world's worst at staying on agenda, I'm going to totally surprise you if Lewis will throw me a pen. What are the four Psalms? The first one is Psalm uh, 8, which is dealt with in chapter 2 of Hebrews and has to do with the incarnation. The second one is Psalm 95, which the pastor read from in his sermon this morning. And Psalm 95, 7 through 11 is dealt with in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. And that's about the perfect, faithful life of Jesus as a man. The third one is Psalm 40, which is quoted in Hebrews 10 and discussed, which is about Jesus giving that perfect, faithful life to the Father as an offering for sin. And the fourth is Psalm 110, 1 and 4, which is all through the book of Hebrews uh, and has to do with Jesus who became a man who was faithful, who gave that faithful life as an offering, who then was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is at the right hand of God in power and glory now. Um, I did not tell Edward I would be asking that question. I just thought I might finally score some points on him in the memory <laughs> game. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly Parkinson's has not shaken his memory. <clears throat> I will mention to you as well, as, uh, the commentary has a little chapter in the very early part of it before you get to the commentary part that talks about these four psalms so you can see a preview of it there. Also, if any of you are interested, there's this really neat class at a church in northwest Harris County called a, a biblical literacy class. And if you go back to the New Testament class that year, uh, lessons number 56 and 57 are on Hebrews, and Mark had invited me to come talk about it, so those talk about these same things as well. I brought in the expert for that when we covered that class. Everybody ready for me to go back? Okay. 
Edward, do you have a favorite passage in the book? And if so, what? I think it's Hebrews 10, 10 through 14, which after discussing the, the fact that Jesus came to do the will of God rather than to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices, it then says he offered that body in which he had done the will of God to God as a perfect sacrifice. And there are two statements made in verses 10 and verses 14. Verse 10 says, by, the, by the, well, this one offering of having done the will of God, he sanctified, uh, he sanctified his people. And verse 14 says, by, by this one offering, he perfected for all time those who are sanctified, which tells us that our, our standing with God, if we trust in Jesus Christ, is not based on anything other or less than the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, which he offered in his human body on the cross as the present to God that he had always wanted but never gotten from any human being. And God could not be more perfectly pleased with that now than he already is. So we take me, and by me I mean any one of us, I sin, I do things wrong. There are times where I wonder how I should address God in worship, knowing what I've done and who I am. Personalize that. Tell me what that means for each one of us. That means when we, when we start looking at our own lives and see the imperfections and the faults and the sins, we say, we say I, do not come, I do not end my prayers by saying in Edward's name. I say, <laughs> I say in Jesus' name. God says, let me pull that file. He doesn't have to do that, of course, but as a matter of speaking, he says, let me pull that file. And he looks at Jesus' record, and he says, here's a life in which there's no blemish. This is a perfect life. This is a life of a son in whom I'm well pleased, and I treat you just like I think about him because you are in him and you are related to him by faith. Amen. On a lighter note of sorts, the publisher calls this a bridge commentary. Why is that? Three bridges at least in this book uh, which have made it unique and have enabled it to gain uh, uh, about three dozen notable endorsements before it was even published across all of Christendom. Uh, the first bridge is this, this bridge is the gap that often exists between the ivory tower academic types and, and, the, and all the real people like all of us. And what I, what I tried to do here was to, to take the very best that all of these very academic types had to offer and to include it in everyday language in here where it makes sense to us. By the same token, I, I worked through the Greek text all the way through this commentary, and I was using the Greek all the time, but there's not a single Greek word in this commentary. So I've tried to bridge the academic and the real world, well, first of all. Secondly... This is a bridge between translations of the New Testament. My first question when I began to try to revise it was, which translation do I use? And I quickly realized no matter which one I picked, I was leaving out a lot of others. So I thought rather than, than uh, just pick one, why not try to create something that everybody could use just as well? So I created what I call the common version. And there's another little chapter in the front of your book about that. Basically, the, uh, I passed this question already. No, you're good. Third, I'm, I'm, let me I'm, just go to the third bridge, and then we'll come okay, back to this. Third, third, what that tries to do is, is bridge the gap between the versions, so no matter which version you use, you'll find this familiar language. The third bridge is between theological perspectives. 
The book of Hebrews is a book about which there's great theological diversity of opinion. Uh, there's Arminian versus Calvinist and all of this kind of stuff. What I try to do in, in writing this book is to say when I come to a passage where there's sharp differences of opinion, these are the two different opinions. This is what they have in common. This is the author's message which addresses both groups. So I tried to bridge build. Let's hone in on the second bridge, the bridge between the translations. And let me ask you this. How did you go about putting together your translation? And as I ask that question, I'll put one of your slides up that you emailed me for this class, uh, the Hebrews chapter 1. Can you walk us through this slide and help us understand yes, I, it? I started out by, taking, by picking, picking out six standard versions, contemporary standard versions. Standard version means that the authors of the version intentionally tried to retain the general look of the traditional English Bible language that goes back to King James and even before. So I took the NIV, the ESV, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the New Revised Standard, the New King James Version, and the New American Standard, and I, and I compared each of these six versions word by word to see what the majority translation was. If there was not a majority translation of a particular word, like they all had different words, or a minority was always different, a majority was, there's no majority, then I would do some linguistic analysis of that particular phrase and say, is this a prepositional phrase? Is it a gerund? Is it a, a whatever, whatever? Does the subject come before the, the, the subject come before the predicate or object? Uh, is it plural or singular? I mean, just all kind of stuff like that and see what the majority did from that standpoint. And so this represents the traditional majority text of the six standard English versions. When I've got in a real pinch, I would sometimes bring in the old King James, old Revised Standard, and old American Standard to try to get a majority. But the, the result of this is if six of you had those six versions and you were all studying this commentary together at somebody's home, and each of you is reading in your own version, all six of you would say, as you read my translation, or my version rather, all six of you would say, this sounds almost like mine, but it's not exactly the same as anybody's except occasionally, accidentally on some particular verse. Is that legal? Yes, it is. Uh, and in, in fact, uh, to, be, to be sure that it was, I not, not only called on my own uh, law school background in the copyright law, but I had lunch one day with my copyright professor at University of Houston Law School and told him what I was doing and got his opinion. He thought it was okay, but he said, don't quote him. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and then, then I wrote a memo, to, a legal memo to the publisher setting out six reasons why it's legal, so I have no problem with it. If you do, you send them to me. <laughs> it's also been called a narrative commentary, and I'd like to know why that is. Well, here I can contrast, in a sense, the, the 1973-74 Our Man in Heaven commentary that I did way back then. That commentary, you opened it up and you had bold print, Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, and then it had discussion of that verse. Then 1.2, it had discussion of that verse, and that's the way it looked like a regular commentary frequently looks. In this book, what I've tried to do is write it in more of a book style, a narrative sort of flow of, of, of reading so that you can actually sit down and read this book all the way through like a regular book if you want to, and you don't feel like you're just reading choppy segments of a commentary. 
uh, to help it be that way, uh, the book is divided into 48 sections, 48 chapters. Each chapter has, uh, I think you want to maybe go to your next slide. Well, uh, maybe um, we didn't do one. No, on this. we didn't. I've okay. got the book up on the Elmo oh, okay, right that's, now. That's good. With a sample. I was hoping you might tell us how you've, you've put the verses and the I, why. I can't, I can't see that on this screen down here. Does that matter? No, it doesn't. They, right. they see that one up there. Or the style of it is uh, in the 48 chapters, first at the top is a chapter heading and the, and the passage of Hebrews that that deals with. That's followed by the text itself in the common version, which is only exists in this book and only on the book of Hebrews. So this is, I'm going to interrupt you, I'm sorry. This is your bridge version, or, or this is where you've taken all the different versions and compared them to get a majority text. Is exactly, that... exactly right. Then, then that is followed in each chapter by a very short paragraph or two section called Why and Wherefore. And what this tries to do is, is relate this little piece of the book to the whole book and the big picture so that you have a continuity going through the book. And then that section is followed by a section that's much longer called Unpacking the Text, in which I take the text one verse and phrase at a time and talk about it. But even then, I have it broken up into subheads as you go through and try to maintain this narrative kind of style throughout. Okay, so if we're in a big hurry, can we just read all the whys and wherefores? That would not be a bad way to get the general overview of it. Okay. But I hope you'll come back later and read the rest. Good. <laughs> <clears throat> What passage do you, who studied this book, has published on it now for over 35 years, what passage of Hebrews do you still find the most difficult to understand? Probably the same one that, that many, many other people do, which is Hebrews chapter 6, in which the author talks about it's impossible for those who once tasted the Word of God and were enlightened and had the taste of the Spirit, etc., etc., and then fall away to renew them again to repentance. This sounds on the surface like he's saying that you can lose your salvation. When I wrote the book 35 years ago, I thought that was the case. Uh, when I wrote this one, I thought that was not the case. Uh, but that, that's a passage that no matter what you believe, there's some things about the, that in the context that you have to say, wait a minute, I want to be careful here. Well, the, um, you say you changed your opinion from the first commentary 35 years ago to the commentary today. What, if we've got folks out here who wonder, gee, has God let me go, what do you have to say to them? I think the, uh, I, I, I don't think I can quote this. Let me see if it's in my Bible. In one of John Stott's commentaries on, I think on, on Romans, he has a, a little four-line st four stanza that is beautifully, beautifully expressed. And uh, this is a newer Bible, and I think I don't have it, but I can tell you the gist of what it says in just a moment if I don't. Uh, Stott ends his commentary on Romans, and it's not in here, but it's, so, it's something to the effect that as we, as we think about our grip on God, to remember that it's not our grip on God, but it's God's grip on us. And, and uh, such passages as Philippians 1 he is he who called you is faithful to complete what he started. Uh, never, never think that our security is based in anything we do or think or feel. Whatever experiences we might have that are wonderful, whatever good works we do, whatever obedience we perform, whatever knowledge we learn, none of that is the basis of our security. The basis of our security is not even that we go down front and confess Christ 
and are baptized. None of that's the basis of our security. The basis of our security is that Jesus took our place. He lived the perfect life for us in our name as our representative. He offered that perfect life to God as an offering for sin in our name and our place as our representative. And he is in heaven at God's right hand as our representative now. So whenever you start, there are two dangers here. Either that we think too much of ourselves, or we think too little of ourselves. If we start thinking too much of ourselves and they, boy, I'm really a hot Christian, then we need to say, wait a minute, there's nothing about me that God can love in myself. It's because of Jesus Christ that he saves me. If we start feeling discouraged about ourselves and think I don't have a, a prayer, then, uh, then uh, in ourselves that's true, but we do have a prayer because of Jesus. And in Jesus, again, what I said a while ago from chapter 10, by his one offering he sanctified us, and by his one offering he made those he sanctified perfect for all time. So we always live before God based on our relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. Okay. When you come across a passage like that that you find difficult to understand, I would be interested, and I think others would as well, in knowing how do you go about studying on a passage that's particularly difficult? How do you go about writing? What do you mechanically do? Make us better Bible students. I'm, I'm not positive I know the, the right answer to that specific question, but I can try to answer the first part. Uh, the first thing, I think these are generally applicable to any Bible study. The first thing is to pray. Uh, knowledge of God comes from God. And unless, God unless the Holy Spirit teaches us, we don't really learn what God wants us to know. So first pray and ask for God's wisdom and guidance and for Him to teach us. Then, uh, then I find it helpful to, to read over the passage in question over and over and over and over again. In my case, doing this, I also read it in Greek over and over again. Not everybody has the opportunity of doing that. That's okay. Most of the standard Bible versions are good enough. You, you get by fine with the English version. But read it over and over in the larger context. Like in Hebrews 6, read the whole chapter over and over again. Then, then notice, especially, this is very important, try to develop the logic of what the author is saying. See how the author is developing his own thought. Instead of going to a verse and say, well, here's a verse that says what I want to prove, go to the chapter or section and say, here's how the author moves through this discussion. And in this particular case, that was one of the helpful things because after he says it's impossible to renew these people to repentance, he then comes down to the end of that discussion and gives a warning about some who are like a field that will be burned. And then he says, but beloved, we are expecting better things of you and things that accompany salvation, even though we talk this way. So in a way, he seems to me to be saying, you really are saved people. I'm expecting that you are saved by the way I see the fruit in your life, but, but you need this warning so you don't get lackadaisical and, and all that. Let me add one other detail here. The, 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 the big question in, in Hebrews between the two basic theological approaches, one side says the warnings in Hebrews, and I must say this before I say that, the two, one of the things I love about Hebrews the most is it is it's the book that is richest in assurances and it's the book that's richest in warnings and it keeps them in perfect balance. So, so the question is when he gives all these warnings through the book, what's the, what's the intent of the warning? Is he saying to people who are saved, don't let yourself get lost again? Or is he saying to people who think they're saved but may not be, 
be careful you may not really be saved even though you say the right words and go through some motions and all of that. And I believe now he's saying the second of those two things. But he gives assurances and warnings. God speaks to us through stereo because one day we need to hear one thing, the other day we need to hear the other. But they always both come back to Jesus. What are some of the most surprising and encouraging comments you've received on the book? And before I let you answer that, I want to show some some of what's happened in this book. What church leaders and biblical scholars are saying. And you look at who has commented on this book. Edward, you have this Will Willimon, who's uh, evidently a bishop in the Methodist church. You have Simon Kistemacher. A lot of us have his commentaries, who's a Reformed Theological Seminary (laughs) professor. He's emeritus. That did not bring out the cemetery in me. Seminary. Um, David Fleer from uh, uh, my undergraduate school out at Lipscomb. David Capes, who a lot of folks in here will know from HBU. You've got uh, Sarah Sumner, who's out at Azusa Pacific. Oops. Sarah Sumner out at Azusa Pacific. You've got Brian McLaren. You've got Chris Marshall, who's at uh, Religious Studies. You've got a fellow some of us know named Jeff Shreve, (laughs) pastor of First Baptist Church, Texarkana, Texas, with From His Heart Ministries. Jeff said, finally, there's a commentary on the often neglected book of Hebrews that combines, combines meticulous scholarship with readability and practical understanding. This work is sure to be a favorite of preachers, teachers, and Bible students alike. And you've got Mennonites, you've got uh, uh, Church of Christ, you've got Presbyterian, you've got Episcopal, you've got uh, Disciples of Christ. Uh, These are the ones that just jump out as me as I flip through here, page after page. In light of that, tell us what are some of the more uh, uh, encouraging and surprising comments you've gotten, please. Well, one of, one, of the, one of the most encouraging things was the, the rapidity and the generosity with which these people wrote back in with endorsements after they were willing to read through the proofs of the book. Well, the, the first, one, two of the first ones who wrote back almost within the same day that I asked them were Bishop Will Willimon from the Methodist Church, who represents the Arminian side, and Simon Kistemacher from Reformed Seminary, who represents the Calvinist side. And it's, it's, they, they both said, we like it. And I said, great, uh, you must be doing this thing right. And a number of years ago, I tried to have an article in Christianity Today, which was co-signed by me, who actually wrote it, a, a friend who's a Calvinist scholar and a friend who's an Armenian scholar. I sent the article to both of them. They both said, we like it, we'll sign off on it. Then the, then the Armenian fellow learned that the Calvinist fellow had signed it, and he said, wait a minute, if he signed it, there must be something I missed. <laughs> <laughs> But th- these guys were all willing to be in the crowd with, <laughs> with each other. Uh, as, as far as um, encouraging, uh, again, the generosity. Uh, look at David Cape's uh, endorsement sometime. I, I'm not going to read it because it would be immodest of me to read it. Well, I'll read it for you. David Cape's from Houston Baptist, which uh, we should also, since we're teaching on Paul right now, uh, David Cape's has a wonderful book on Paul. Um, David Capes says, despite the great cloud of unknowns swirling about the book of Hebrews, Edward Fudge cuts through the haze and discovers great encouragement for beleaguered believers today. Fudge, he doesn't know you like to be called Edward. 
Edward masterfully distills modern scholarly discussions into readable, elegant prose, putting top-shelf scholarship at eye level, making it available to all. Some consider Hebrews to be the most difficult and elusive book in the New Testament. Edward punctuates his commentary in all the right places with boxes of print that lay out the various theological options to Hebrews' most puzzling passages. Saturated in covenant language and adept in biblical and non-biblical sources, Edward is uniquely qualified to help his readers appreciate the rhetoric, heed the warnings, and follow in the steps of the true saints. Very nice man, wasn't he? He's very accurate, too. He's a wonderful scholar. Okay, now let's get to the real questions. How did you get the cover on this book? Well, that's a fun story. Uh, the publisher, uh, am I seeing what you're seeing? You're, the big screen there, okay, I'll keep active yeah. with you. The publisher had his artist send me two sample covers, which you see on the screen. I didn't like either one of them. But I went on the Internet and found a Greek Orthodox icon, which is, as you look at that, I suppose it's on your left. It's, it's called Hey Analepsis, which is Greek for the Ascension. And it shows the apostles looking up into heaven and Jesus at the right hand of God. I said when I saw that, the top half of that picture, that icon, is exactly what I need for this book cover. So I tried to find it on the Internet. I found what I thought was it and sent it to the publisher. He said, the problem is, uh, I like it, he said, but the problem is this file that is not high resolution enough to use for printing. So we got to find another kind of file somewhere like that. So I searched and searched and searched. I think another slide. Uh, I, I spent about 20 hours, wrote to uh, Orthodox, Greek Orthodox seminaries, Greek Orthodox churches, Greek Orthodox uh, schools, or whatever I'm left out there. And, and I wrote to eight iconographers who, who draw these kinds of pictures and said, here's this thing I found. Does anybody know where it came from or how I might find a printable copy of it that I could use in a book? They all wrote back, don't know, don't know, don't know. Then, then uh, as this year came, as we came into this year, uh, one Saturday night, at uh, 10 o'clock on Saturday night, I was still looking one more time, and I suddenly came to this site that sells artwork, and there this was for the first time ever. I immediately sent it to the publisher. I said, this is it, I think. At 10.30 Saturday night, he wrote me back and said, this is it. I've ordered it. I've sent it to our artist. He'll have a cover for you in three days. And we had to pay the grand sum for the use of this artwork of $5. (laughs) Sarah Faye, would I embarrass you to bring you up on stage? Would you mind terribly? This is Sarah Faye Fudge. And uh, there's no H on her name. I always get it wrong because we have an H on our Sarah. Sarah Faye, have a seat. Um, Edward, tell us about Sarah Faye. (laughs) I want to know how you met her. I want to know. Yes, I know this is a surprise to you. I want to know how you courted her. I've been waiting 44 years to do this. And I want... <laughs> to embarrass <laughs> No. We met at a small Christian junior college in Temple Terrace, Florida, called Florida College. I had stayed out a year after my freshman year and worked, and she started the year I was out. So we came back in the fall of 1964 as, fr- as sophomores at the same time. Uh, the first time she saw me, I was uh, making a fool of myself in the lobby of the girls' dorm. And she walked downstairs and took one look and said to her friend, that's the silliest man I ever saw. Uh, 
the first date I had with her, which was going to church, which I had overslept, and uh, she went without me, and then I caught up with her. Uh, I came home from the date, and my roommate said, Fudge, that's the girl you're going to marry. So that's the way we got started. We did marry in 1967 after I graduated from Abilene Christian University, and she graduated from Peabody, now Vanderbilt in Nashville. And uh, we've been together as husband and wife since 1967. That's 42 years. The last part of that question, if I can say a word about that, how did she help in the writing of the book? She was an only child, and so through 42 years, she's been very patient and willing to be an only child and let me do things while she sits in the living room by herself. I've been very selfish at times, but it's also been a blessing that she was willing to do that because it gave me time to work on things like this. She's also been an English teacher, and so uh, while I can write for myself pretty much, I always run things past her and say, what do you think about this? How does it sound? She's a tester of my ideas. If I, th if I push the limits too far in any direction, she's quick to say that. And, uh, but she loves me, and so she does it in a nice way. And uh, <laughs> very great help. Okay, final. Can you just stay up here, Seraphine? Tell us about Grace Mail. Grace Mail is an Internet ministry that I've been doing for 13 years. Some of you receive it. I can't really see you, but I'm curious how many of you do get it. How many of you get Grace Mail? Well, there's enough for a starter here. Fertile Field. Fertile field. Uh, if, if you go to edwardfudge.com, you can read about Grace Mail. This is an Internet column that goes out three times a week to about 4,000 free subscribers around the world. Usually it's answering a Bible or spiritual question. I try to do it in three paragraphs or less. Uh, sometimes I have what I call Grace Mail Family Notes, which is things of interest that I've come upon and think you might be interested in or telling my teaching schedule and things like that. Uh, you have featured our class in Family Notes I, I before and urged people to come to our website. More times than one. And, uh, and the Grace Mail has been a great blessing to me because it's, it's the biggest congregation I've ever had in my life. Uh, and it's just amazing that God lets me do this. Okay, well, Edward has and Sarah Faye have graciously, graciously agreed to postpone their eating and their lunch for a little bit, and we will set them up to sign copies. Uh, uh, Edward, we may just put your stool down right here and okay. let folks who want. He's already signed. He stayed up and signed everybody's book. That's his signature. Okay. And he did it. He did it so that he would have time. For anybody who might like a personal inscription, he'll put a name in it. Or if you're going to give your copy to someone, he'll do that. Would you join me in praying for the fudges in this work? Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus at your right hand, our man in heaven. We pray in the name of Jesus. Thanks for your love and attention, for your caring and for your touch. Thank you for your provision, providing scholars like Edward mates like Sarah Fay that produce works like this. We thank you for the publishers. We thank you for bringing it into our lives. We pray that your word will minister through this book, not only to us, but to, to, to the world. We thank you for the, the fudges, and we pray your blessings on their ministry. Thank you for the love and devotion they have for you. We pray for their health. We pray for their strength. And we pray for, for their walk with you. Through Jesus, your Son. Amen. Amen.